Go and grab your Bibles and open them to Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, we're going to be looking at verse 13. Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah 29, verse 13, it says this, The Lord said, These people approach me with their speeches to honor me with their lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and human rules direct their worship of me. Let's pray. Lord, even tonight, we don't want to come to you with empty words, with mouths that, that profess love and honor to you while our hearts are far from you. So we ask, God, that you would help us by your spirit, kindle our affections towards you now as we think on your word, as we meditate on it. We need your help. So we ask that you would give it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What are words worth? Tonight, the Oscars are going on. Ricky Gervais, in, in giving an opening monologue to the Golden Globe several years ago, asked the actors to please keep their speeches short because nobody cares what you have to say. In that case, Ricky Gervais was saying that their words weren't very worth it. Or if you're in the South and you hear someone talk about another person uh, in gentle form, describing how terrible a person they are, they might say something like, bless their heart. In that case, their words aren't really worth much. What God is exposing here in Isaiah 29, 13, is that the Israelites are coming to God and saying beautiful things, ornate things, eloquent things, and yet, because of their hearts, and because of the rules that they choose to follow, God finds their worship and their words to be utterly worthless. So here's the main idea for us tonight. Worship with wicked hearts and worldly rules is worthless. Say that again. Worship with wicked hearts and worldly rules is worthless. We're going to start by looking at wicked hearts, and then we'll look at worldly rules. First, let's look at wicked hearts. Look at verse 13 again. The Lord said, These people approach me with their speeches to honor me with their lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and human rules direct their worship of me. The first thing that the Lord notes is what these people do, or what they do. And at the surface, they're doing what seems to be good things. They're approaching God, they're, they're honoring him with their words. Seems like seemingly good stuff to do. But the issue isn't the act of approaching God or honoring him, but what's missing. 
Israel approaches God with their mouths, right? That's really what that word means when they say speech is theirs. They're approaching God with their mouths, and they honor God with their lips, but their heart is gone. Their worship of God is hollow, with a heart missing, not holistic. Their mouths may be moving, but their lips are lying. In an old British political sitcom uh, called Yes Minister, there's a government official named Humphrey in the British Parliament who's an expert at saying little with a lot. And in one episode, every time someone asked a minister a question, the minister would say, well, that is an administrative question for Humphrey. And so the guy would go to Humphrey to ask the question. And when Humphrey received the question, he would say, well, that's a policy question for the minister and send him back to the minister. So this gentleman keeps ping-ponging back and forth and exacerbated, he asks Humphrey how he's supposed to find an answer to his question if they keep bouncing him back and forth between the two individuals. Humphrey responds as so, quote, yes, 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 I do see there's a real dilemma here in that while it has been government policy to regard policy as a responsibility of ministers and administration as a responsibility of officials, the question of administrative policy can cause confusion between the policy of administration and the administration of policy, especially when responsibility for the administration of policy of administration conflicts or overlaps with responsibility for the policy of the administration of policy. The man responds, well, that's a load of meaningless drivel, right? Our lips can lie. Our lips can lie. Our lips can wax eloquent about the majesty of God while cursing him in our hearts. We go to God and try to say a little with a lot, as though we can confuse or distract God from the utter lack of care and affection that we have for him. Even Judas, just before his betrayal, greets Jesus, saying, greetings, Rabbi, before betraying him with a kiss. Our lips can lie, but God sees straight through our meaningless drivel. The Lord couldn't care less about the hollow things that we say because he can see our hearts. 2 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord says that humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. God is looking for our hearts more than for our words. And in Israel's case, their hearts are nowhere to be found. And God, just like in the garden, is asking, where are you? Because physical presence doesn't hide spiritual absence. Physical presence doesn't hide spiritual absence. So let me ask you tonight, where are you? Are you here? Like, are you actually here? Are you tracking with God? You see, God is more concerned about your heart for him than your words for him. This is especially dangerous in a, in a church where we're taught often what we should be saying. We confess beautiful summaries of biblical truths. We sing songs thick with the glories of God. And we pray prayers that praise God, confess our sins, and look to Jesus and ask for God's help. 
And if we get caught up in the articulation of truth more than the affections that come from the truth, we end up speaking a load of meaningless drivel. God couldn't care less about the SAT words that we use. And God wants us to be here. Not just here physically, but present spiritually. But Israel's hearts were missing. That's point number one, wicked hearts. Here's a second, worldly rules. Worldly rules. And linked with their absent hearts are these commands of men. Worldly rules that are directing their actions towards God. See, many idols at the time operate like a symbiotic relationship. So it's not just like these idols are benevolent beings that exist above that don't need us. They actually need you. So what you do is you take care of your idol, you, you clean it, you offer it sacrifices, and in turn, the idol would provide harvest or fertility or whatever else the idol was in control of. So a human command to worship God would operate kind of like a manual to win God's approval. So you input these obedient actions in order to achieve certain positive outcomes. So I did this for you, now you're going to do this for me. And that's the danger of worldly rules. It takes God and turns him into a vending machine where you input your obedience coins and you output God's favor. And when you follow the rules of these human beings, the, the metrics of success start to change. It, it shifts the focus from pleasing the Lord to completing your tasks to checking your boxes. You see, worldly rules give false guilt with what they demand because then you get obsessed with the little nooks and crannies of the things that you have to do for this God and they provide false assurance with what they ignore because you think that if you complete all your tasks then you don't need to worry anymore or you don't need to put your heart into it. So you'll either end up thinking that you're not good enough, right? Uh, even though God may command it, or you'll feel fine despite disobeying the Lord's commands. In either case, worldly rules ignore your heart. It keeps your heart far from the Lord because it's not focused on him. It's focused on the exchange. It's focused on the results from obedience at the expense of the reason for obedience. Right? It, it trades the, the person for what it gives, for what the person gives. And these rules direct not just their worship, but the word that is used here is actually the fear of God. Not the worship of God, but the fear of God. In other words, just like their words, their fear of God is empty, fake, non-existent, because they're seeing God all wrong. Because when you follow after worldly rules and not God's, then, then God is treated like someone who can be appeased with hollow words. As though God's a computer who's incapable of seeing your heart as you speak to him. Empty words reveal an empty heart, but it also reveals an empty view of God. It reveals an empty view of, of God, a lack of fear for him. Their wicked hearts and worldly rules have led to worthless words. 
And missing from, from any of these things that these Israelites are doing is what God says. They're talking, but they're not listening. They're not doing what God is commanding of them. Instead, they're telling God to shut up so that they can go ahead and take care of him and then move on and get on with the rest of their lives. And so, in response, God uses his mouth. The Lord said in the beginning of verse 13. He exposes their hypocrisy and, and punishes them. And then and God's curse in response to their disobedience in verses 11 through 12, as well as 14 after this, is to confound these people, to, to blind them from what the word of God says. That's the curse. So what do we do in response to a verse like this that talks about wicked hearts and, and worldly rules? The reality is that we can't do anything to win God's approval. We can't even understand God's word and his commands to follow him apart from his spirit's help. That's precisely why God in his cursing is preventing the word of God from making sense to the Israelite people. All of us have to look to one thing, and that person is Christ. If you're not a Christian, this is the gospel that we, we hold on to, that all of us have turned away from this holy God because of our sin. We've attempted to create our own shortcuts, to, to cut our own corners while abandoning God in our hearts. And because of our heartless hypocrisy, we deserve to die for our sin. But God, in his kindness, instead of abandoning us, comes to us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who lived the perfect life that you and I never could. And his mouth and his heart were always directed towards God perfectly. And on the cross, he, he bore the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins, and he died. But on the third day, he rose victorious over sin and death. So if you trust in Christ, if you look to him, if you turn from your sin and look to him, you can be forgiven for your wicked heart and for you following worldly rules. You see, the way that we come to Jesus isn't by solving the Rubik's Cube of God's expectations or, or tricking him into ignoring the depths of our own souls, but to come to him with our wickedness with our emptiness, and to have God fill us up. See, our hope doesn't come from our resolve to do better or our three-step plan to rehabilitate our heart, but to look to Christ as we look to him, to be drawn to him in our hearts, to see his beauty and to go to him. That's the solution to a cold, empty heart, Christ. And as Richard Sibbs says, when we feel ourselves cold in affection and duty, the best way to solve this issue is to warm ourselves at this fire of his love and mercy in giving himself for us. Friends, draw near to Christ. Let Christ warm your heart. And as your heart is drawn to his flame, let your heart move your lips and draw out 
true worship. Draw true worship. Let me end with this quote from Augustine. I know I'm over time, but it's so good. See, sometimes we can think that, that our hearts isn't enough, right? But the actual beauty of relieving us of our wicked hearts and of worldly rules is that we see that our heart is really all we need for Christ to save us as long as we look towards him. So here's what Augustine says. He says, nor must it be said of us, as it was said, that people who praise God with their mouths but not their hearts, this people honors me with their lips, but its heart is far from me. Sing with your lips, but draw near to him with your heart. For, quote, the faith that issues in righteousness is in the heart, and the confession that leads to salvation is made with the lips. Romans 10, 10. This was true of the thief who hung on the cross with the Lord and from the cross acknowledged the Lord. Others failed to recognize the Lord even as he performed miracles. But this man recognized him as he hung on the cross. The thief was nailed securely in all his limbs. His hands were immobilized by nails. His feet were transfixed and his whole body fastened to the wood. That body had no use of its other members, but his heart had the use of his tongue. And with his heart, he believed. And with his lips, he made the confession, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He hoped for salvation as a distant prospect and would have been content to receive it after a long delay. His hope stretched towards a far off future but the day was not delayed. He prayed, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But Christ replied, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. It doesn't matter if you feel like your hands can't move or your feet can't walk. If your heart is drawn towards Christ, that's enough. And with that heart, your lips can move. We praise towards God. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would stir in us a passion for your glory, to be captivated by your beauty, and with it to be, to be moved towards true worship, a genuine outpouring of our hearts in praise towards you. Pray that you would help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.